chapter 38. Now this chapter ties in just as much as 36 and 37 do to the Assyrian invasion, even though it has to do with Hezekiah's illness. That you'll see in um, verses uh, 5 and 6, for example, that it has everything to do with protection from the Assyrians. Verse 1, In those days Hezekiah became gravely ill, and the prophet Isaiah the son of Amos came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, again the Lord's emissary, Put your house in order. You will die. You will not recover. Actually, he does recover. He lives another 15 years. So does that mean that the Lord's word is not true? Well, he should still put his house in order anyway. He's still going to die anyway after that. So it just means that things have been delayed, that the prophecy has been delayed for a time. That's classic with the Lord's prophecies, that sometimes, as in the case of Jonah prophesying the destruction of Nineveh, it didn't happen at the time, but it happened years later in fulfillment of Jonah's prophecy, according to the book of Tobit, that makes a direct connection with Jonah's prophecy. It just didn't happen at the time. Verse 2, At this Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord. And the wall there is very symbolic because it's like he's come to a dead end. There's nothing left for him. I beseech thee to remember, O Lord, how I have walked before thee faithfully and with full purpose of heart and have done what is good in thine eyes. And Hezekiah wept disconsolately. Now in chapter 7 it talks about the son Emmanuel choosing good. He learns to do the good and to reject the evil. To accept the good and to reject the evil. And good and evil are technical terms in covenant language that denote covenant keeping and covenant breaking and covenant blessing and covenant curse. The results of covenant keeping and covenant breaking. So here he's saying, I have kept covenant with you, Lord, virtually all his life. I have walked before thee faithfully with full purpose of heart, have done what is good in thine eyes. Why then should he suddenly die? And that was his particular test. He is now under threat of death. Just the same as the whole nation is under threat of death from the Assyrians. He's going through individually what they're going through collectively. And we saw that also in chapters 7 and 8, the ones that are juxtaposed with these chapters. The king was afraid of the Assyrians, and he shook and trembled, and the people also shook and trembled in their own way. There were many connections between king and people. What he goes through, they go through. But for him, it must have been an especially paradoxical situation. Because for some people, a test from God can be a major thing, and to another person, that same test may not be major at all. It may just be something that doesn't faze them. In Hezekiah's case, there was something about his life being cut short at the height of his strength, at the height of his righteousness, at the height of everything good. There was something peculiar about that that was particularly difficult for him to deal with. And yet, he passed the test. To another person, it may not have been. And we see that with every test that the Lord individualizes for a person. It's particularly hard for that individual. The Lord always seems to choose things that are the most difficult for that particular individual. The very thing that he would least want to happen. He doesn't object. He accepts God's will in the matter. That's clear. Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and tell Hezekiah. And so in response to Hezekiah's prayer to the Lord, 
the Lord sends word to Hezekiah through his prophet again. And all this is establishing the proper protocol, the proper procedures, that the word comes to the king and to the people through his prophet. Go and tell Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David. Now, the fact that he says that is really good omen, because it implies that Hezekiah is in line with the Lord as his father David was. Just like it says in verse 35, For my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. It implies that he accepts Hezekiah as a loyal heir of King David. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. I will protect this city. What has the Lord's protection against the Assyrians got to do with his recovering from his illness? Because here the two ideas are linked together directly. It has everything to do with it. Because Hezekiah has been praying for deliverance from the Assyrians with the Lord, both directly and sending through the prophet, and asking Isaiah to intercede for the city's deliverance as well. And here he's praying and he recovers and also the city will be protected. He escapes death and the people escape death. So it's another link between king and people that what he goes through, they go through. Only the test that he has to pass is much more difficult than that of the people because he himself is in mortal agony as we'll read in just a few minutes here in this chapter. He goes through a tremendous physical ordeal through horrible nighttime agonies and yet he submits his life to the Lord humbly and does in accordance with the Lord's will. The account of his illness here in verses 10 through 20 actually precedes chronologically what we've just been reading. He's already gone through this horrible illness, and now the Lord sends word that he's going to be delivered, and also his people will be delivered. And that verse, verse 6, is very similar to chapter 37, verse 35. I will protect the city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And here it says, I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. I will protect this city. I will protect this city appears twice. Once in chapter 38, verse 6, and once in chapter 37, verse 35. But in 2 Kings, where this account of the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem also appears, those two verses that are separated here in Isaiah, namely 38, verse 6, and 37, verse 35, are one verse. They appear as one verse in 2 Kings. So Isaiah has taken something that is really one account and divided into two parts. One applying to the deliverance of the people and one applying it to the deliverance of the king. And that way he is linking the deliverance of the king with that of his people, indissolubly, as it were. He borrows from 2 Kings and he divides the verse into two, applies one half to 38 and one half to 37 thus connecting the two incidents. There's an integral connection between the two. In fact, the common phrase, I will protect the city, also implies that. Also, for the sake of my servant David, in verse 35 of chapter 37, and and thus is the Lord the God of your father David, in chapter 38, verse 5. David is mentioned twice, too. What does all that mean? Why is he doing all that? Well, it implies that Hezekiah's intercession has had power with God. 
to bring about his own deliverance and that of his people because his intercession is backed up with this horrendous affliction of Hezekiah in which he offers his life willingly to God, submits his life to God. His prayer is substantiated, his prayer of intercession is substantiated with all of this grievous affliction that he has to endure. In response to that suffering, the Lord promises to protect the city. He didn't just say, oh yeah, I'll protect the city. No, he links it to Hezekiah's suffering, to his praying in the midst of his agony, and his yielding his life to God. That's why it says in chapter 52, verse 11, he shall see the toil of his soul and be satisfied. He poured out his soul unto death. Chapter 52, verse 12. Hezekiah does all of that, as we'll see in the next few verses. That pouring out of his soul unto death pays the price of his people's deliverance. And so Hezekiah passes the test in that way, and this is how we see that a deliverer is born. Here's where the deliverer is born. He passes the test of God. And when the deliverer is born, then the people may be delivered. He delivers the people. Verse 21 and verse 22. They don't appear in the uh, chronology of chapter 38. They appear at the end of the chapter, but they're out of context there. Remember how we discussed how these scriptures were transmitted from scribe to scribe? And uh, sometimes there were times of emergency in Israel when the scriptures were destroyed by the enemies and they were nevertheless in people's heads. The scribes remembered them all. They memorized them. That was their job. But when they got to a safe place and started transcribing them from memory, sometimes they would forget a word or a verse. And then they would remember later that they had forgotten to write it down. But by then, the scroll was already full. They couldn't cut and paste like we do with a computer today, so they put it down where they remembered it. And there's numerous instances of that throughout the book of Isaiah, where their verses or words or phrases don't appear in context. But they do if you look back further in the chapter, or even some as earlier than the chapter. You see that there is a context in which they fit, and they fit here. After verse 6, we have verses 21 and 22. And Isaiah gave instructions to take fig packs and apply them to the swelling so that he could recover. Because he's adding 15 years to his life. That's the context in verse 5. And here he's going to recover. Also, it uses fig packs. Probably we wouldn't do that today. We send them to the MD and he'll give you some antibiotics or something. This is um, more the Lord's way of doing things. Verse 22, But Hezekiah said, What of a sign that I shall again go up to the house of the Lord? And that verse is full of meaning because going up to the house of the Lord doesn't just mean that he's going to get better and able to walk again and go back to the temple and pray before the Lord. We'll see in verse 11 what he's really asking here in verse 22. He wants to go up to the house of the Lord to see the Lord. And that's also what Isaiah gave as a purpose for temple going in chapter 1, do you remember? He said, what's the purpose of your coming to sacrifice at the temple, in verse 11 of chapter 1, and he answers it in verse 12, when you come to see me, it's to see the Lord. We discussed that. And he hasn't seen the Lord yet, but he knows that you can, because Isaiah saw him in chapter 6, and Isaiah is his teacher and mentor, so he wants to see the Lord, and in verse 11, he bewails the fact that he's been living 
righteously, but he hasn't yet seen the Lord in the land of the living. He doesn't want to see him in the land of the dead. He doesn't want to go there then and see him. He wants to see him now while he's still alive. Because that means that he has ascended the spiritual ladder and is worthy of that. And he wants to accomplish that in this lifetime. That was another great test for him, the fact that he hadn't done that. The ascension of Isaiah, an apocalyptic book, describes how during his illness, Hezekiah did see the Lord. And that's what he meant when he says, What of a sign that I shall again go up to the house of the Lord. Now, is he bad for asking for a sign? He's not. He's obviously a very righteous man, but he's asking for something. He's asking for some kind of confirmation, some kind of assurance. And he gets it. The Lord gives it to him. In chapter 7, Isaiah, or the Lord, offers King Ahaz a sign. He says, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord God, whether in the heaven above or on the earth beneath. He says, I won't. I will not put the Lord to the test. And that's pious hypocrisy. If the Lord offers you a sign, take it. But he wouldn't, because he didn't want the sign. He wanted to do his own will. He was in a state of rebellion against God. And he didn't want the sign that would confirm that he could receive God's protection. He wanted to do what he wanted to do in the situation. We see the juxtaposition between Hezekiah and King Ahaz here in this structure, where the one actually asks for a sign and gets it. The other one rejects the sign. Verse 7, Isaiah replied, This shall be a sign to you from the Lord. You see now the context of verse 22 here, how it fits in context before verse 7, because they're talking about a sign. This shall be a sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. See, I make the shadow cast by the afternoon sun on the dial of Ahaz, his father, recede the ten degrees it has gone down, so the sun reversed its descent by the ten degrees on the dial. So the Lord performed a miracle for him, and the sun actually reversed its descent. Now how can you do that? Well, to the Lord it's no big deal. There's all kinds of different time zones involved in his creation. There's celestial time and there's terrestrial time. And so he can do those things. And what does that mean, though, that the sun reversed its descent? Because in ancient Eastern culture and tradition, the king represented the sun. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, was a sun to his people. And the sun disk rising up over the primeval mound is the ascent of the king up to God or the institution of the king's reign, his benevolent and righteous rule of his people, is likened to a new dawn. Kings were the sons of their people, S-U-N, and they shone upon the people, and they brought about a good time, fertility, and all of that. This is a sign that King Hezekiah's life is being extended. It was at the end of his life, the sun had gone down, and now it reverses its ascent, so he's given a new lease of life. In fact, 15 years. It says in verse 1, In those days Hezekiah became gravely ill. That's in the days of the Assyrian siege. In chapter 36, verse 1, it's in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign that the Assyrians march against Jerusalem. The 14th year means that he has ruled 13 years already, Correct? And this is now the 14th year that the Assyrians attacked Jerusalem. Now he's given another 15 years to his life, so the 13 plus 15 makes how many? 28. 28 is twice what? 14. 
14 is the numerical value of the name David. So what this is doing is confirming the fact that Hezekiah is a descendant of David, a righteous descendant of David, a loyal descendant of David. Now when Matthew, I think it is, gives the genealogy of Jesus, what does he do there? He gives three times 14 generations of the lineage of Jesus, implying that Jesus is a descendant of David, a legitimate heir of King David. It's similar to what's going on here. It's an affirmation that here we have a legitimate descendant of David. And he's using numerology to convey that idea. There's many other uses of the number 14 in the Old Testament, as in the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the first month. Why the 14th day of the first month? Because it links the Passover lamb with the descendant of David. Verse 9, Hezekiah, king of Judah's account of his illness, written upon his recovery. So after it was all over, he recovered, then he wrote down what actually happened during his illness. Verse 10, I said, maybe he cried, in the prime of life, must I depart through Sheol's gates? Sheol is the underworld or the spirit prison, or hell, or death. Deprived of the balance of my years. For some reason, that keeps being a great test for Hezekiah. That right in the prime of life, he's cut off. He had a hard time with that. He couldn't understand that because he'd been loyal. He was expecting God's blessings. Because all the kings of Israel ruled 40 years. A righteous king ruled that long. They had long reigns. And his, it was unfair. It was so contradictory of the ways of God. And he had a hard time dealing with that paradox. But he did. I thought, I shall not see the Lord in the land of the living. I shall not now behold man among those dwelling in mortality. He parallels the Lord there with man. This is the poetry that we're talking about, the parallelisms. He parallels the Lord with man. And why would he do that? It's the name of God. Well, God is an exalted man. He knows that. He understands that. Man here is an exalted being, a God. My tabernacle is being uprooted, carried away from me like a shepherd's tent. It's using metaphor here, his tabernacle meaning his body. My life is cut off like woven fabric. He's severing me from the loom. We talked about the fabric of life a minute ago. Have you ever spent time weaving? And when you get it finished finally, what do you do? You get a sharp knife and you go, and cut it off. And he's likening his life being cut off like that. Cruelly, suddenly, dramatically. Verse 13. He's obviously in agony. Can I contain myself until morning? While like a lion he racks my whole frame. He's in torment, being torn apart like a lion would tear apart a person. Surely as night has followed day, thou art bringing on my end. And usually it's the other way around. Day follows night. It's all back to front. He's trying to deal with this situation. He's a little pessimistic here. Night has followed the day. He was just in the flower of life and he was accomplishing so much. He had cleaned up his people's spiritual condition throughout the land. He was just beginning to prosper and now he's cut off. Because the dawn follows the night. In Hebrew, it's from evening to morning, one day. 
right? It's not from morning to evening, like it is here in, in our culture. Our day begins with morning time. In Hebrew culture, the day begins in the evening. There's always the night before the day, the dark before the light. And that's the proper way, because in Isaiah's theology, the bad times always come before the good times. Before the millennium comes, there is a period of tribulation. There's a cleansing. There's always suffering before salvation, humiliation before exaltation, chaos before creation, dark before light. Verse 14, Like a mounting lark I twitter, like a dove I murmur, my eyes are drawn looking heavenward. I'm utterly sleepless from bitterness of soul. O Lord, I'm in straits, be my surety. And when a person is in straits, all that he has left really is the Lord, his God. And he's been brought to that point. But he's looking up, not down. But what shall I say when he has already spoken for me, when he himself has brought it about? In other words, his sentence has been pronounced upon him. Set your life in order, you're going to die, not recover. Can he change God's word? Can he plead with God and ask him to not do that now? Verse 16, O my Lord, by means of such trials comes a newness of life, and throughout them all the renewal of my spirit. So now he's beginning to process through his ordeal and see that this has meaning in his life, that this suffering has a purpose, even his death. The purpose is the renewal of the spiritual life, the renewal of his spirit. It's a cleansing, has a sanctifying effect on him. Surely for my own good, I am in such dire distress. Good meaning covenant blessing, that good can come out of this evil. So he's seeing things in a proper perspective now, in God's perspective. It's coming to him. So he's in the process now of passing the test. By its means thou drawest my soul out of the pit of dissolution, that is, after death, the second death. For thou hast cast all my sins behind thee, restoring and reviving me. His suffering and his afflictions purified him of his sins. He receives a remission of his sins, just like Isaiah did in chapter 6. When he saw the Lord, he talks about having received a remission of his sins there. It gives him a newness of life. Verse 18, For Sheol cannot praise thee, nor death glorify thee. Death and Sheol, they're unparalleled. So they're kind of synonymous ideas. He doesn't want to go down to Sheol because he can't do there what he's doing here. Here he's able to praise God and do much more than he can do down there in the underworld or in the spirit prison. Those who go down into the pit have no further hope of thy faithfulness. The going down implies regression. Going up implies spiritual progress. Those who go down are those who regress, like his father, perhaps, King Ahaz. If you die and you have also died the spiritual death, then what's left? There's no further hope. Down there, there's nothing you can do, he's saying. God's faithfulness is to be taken advantage of now in this life. When you end up down there, it's all over. But the living, only they bring thee praise, as I do this day. From father to sons, they pass on the knowledge of thy faithfulness. O Lord, may it please thee to save me, and we will perform music all the days of our lives in the house of the Lord. He obviously loved the Lord in the house of the Lord. And no doubt it was after this prayer that he saw the Lord. 
that it says in the Ascension of Isaiah. 